You're about to listen to episode five of the podcast. Since the 1790s, the United States has had six different party systems or coalitions of voters. As the country heads into its seventh party system, what will the new Democratic and new Republican parties be like in 2050? Will the Democrats and Republicans be around at all? In this episode, we cover the Whigs, Abraham Lincoln, Bernie Sanders, hip and healthy 120-year-olds, a Hispanic plurality, the Apple Store in Shanghai, and the seventh party system. I'm Eddie Quintana. And I'm Nick Daze. Welcome to Robot F. Kennedy. I have a quote for you. You've probably heard it before. Quote, There is nothing which I dread so much as a division of the Republic into two great parties, each arranged under its leader, and concerting measures in opposition to each other. This, in my humble apprehension, is to be dreaded as the greatest political evil under our Constitution. John Adams. So I know we've, you and I have talked before about political parties, and you're ultimately not a fan of them. Is that, is that still fair to say? It's a, I'm ambivalent about them, I would say. <laughs> okay. So I was thinking recently about how leading up to the 2016 election, it was like, I, I feel like I was reading coverage that was saying, is the Republican Party in danger of being irrelevant, right? They had embarked on this non-inclusive platform for years. And as the country is becoming more and more diverse, the Republican Party platform had veered, uh, you know, away from that diversity. So they won the, the presidential election. They won majorities in both houses of Congress. They already controlled the state houses in like 32 or 33 states or something like that. They, they have 33 Republican, there are 33 Republican governors. So it's so strange that it, that was the media narrative that, you know, is the Republican Party on its on the ropes? But yet it seems to be doing so well. And then it seemed like overnight the narrative shifted to is the Democratic Party on the ropes. So there's something that uh, I was listening to uh, uh, the 538 podcast yesterday. It was the most recent episode. In it, one of their co-hosts said something that rang so true to me. It was something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing here, in politics, particularly in American politics, we forget that we have so few data points, statistically speaking. Mm -hmm. Um, even every two years, the Republic is only 240 years old, right? Mm -hmm. So you only have really theoretically 120 data points for for federal elections. Mm -hmm. And um, that's not a lot. So what we tend to do is we tend to have one election and everybody points at it and goes, that's the new, I think the quote from the podcast was, that's the new ironclad law right. of political uh, life. And so I want to push back a little bit on what you just said. I'm not at a I'm at thirty thousand feet. I'm not disagreeing with what you said, mm -hmm. but I I feel um, very compelled to remind us both in this conversation that the Republicans retained control of Congress. Mm -hmm. They did not. I think your words you said was oh. that they won right majorities in Congress. They actually lost seats in both the Senate and the House of Representatives. So they are shoring up. Uh, major gains that they had, but they are slowly losing those majorities. Um, if you look at 2016, the president of the United States, and this is going to become very important for this conversation, the president of the United States won the presidency through the Electoral College mm -hmm. with, the, with the biggest popular vote loss of any president that's ever won the actual election. Mm -hmm. So we have a situation where I remember 
again, flashback. We should come up with a name for our flashbacks to our childhood uh-huh. of growing up in Republican families. Uh-huh. I remember all of the shit that Bill Clinton got because he didn't win a in, in quotes he didn't win a majority right. in 1992. He just won a plurality. Right. If my dad had such a problem with that in 1993. Where's the where's the guff to Donald Trump? But when you say that the Republicans didn't win a majority in the House, all of the Congress people in the House ran for re-election. Okay. So, so isn't that... It's a valid <laughs> counterpoint. Valid counterpoint. My question, I guess... So you're saying from 30,000 feet you agree, but when you get closer... I, so I agree with that, that like you're right. The Republicans are held on to their majority, especially in the Senate. But, and yeah, and I forgot that Donald Trump I literally had forgotten that Donald Trump's, that he lost the popular vote. By the largest margin of any president that's ever entered office. Right. And I think that's, again, I'm not, to be clear to our listeners, I'm not relitigating the election. The rules are the rules. Right, absolutely. But it is disingenuous for us to say, anytime anyone says that the Republicans have a mandate, I think that is the biggest crock of shit I've ever heard in my Mm -hmm. life. Um, One other thing I wanted to point out, is that I think you used the terminology, uh, you read a lot of articles last year that said the Republican Party's on the ropes or the Republican mm-hmm. Party is in danger of being irrelevant, mm-hmm. I think is what you said. I've read a lot of articles that said the Republican Party's dying. Right. And I think that's true. Um, because, and we can talk at length about this, but I would point to the fact that the Republican Party as an institution and an establishment was unable to control its agenda in 2016, was unable to control its message in 2016, and was unable to control its presidential candidate in 2016. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that presidential candidate won, in air quotes, on the back of jettisoning decades of Republican Party orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. That's how this Republican president won. Mm-hmm. So I would say that if, if you would define party health as... You could define it. You could we could pick a few KPIs, right? Uh, total number of registered voters, seamlessness with in, with which uh, party conventions are organized, <laughs> dynamism of its backbench of candidates, uh, etc. I would say the Democratic Party is not in fantastic shape, but I think the Republican Party. I would say don't lose the forest from the trees. Yes, the Republicans control three the three branches of government as of today. However. I would say that the Republican Party is closer to, in quotes, death as we know it. They're closer to that, I think, than the Whigs were in the 1850s. I don't know how you... (laughs) I knew the Whigs were going to come up today. I just didn't know how soon. I don't know how you could say that with the Republicans controlling so many state houses. And I, I I think that we need to back up and ask, what is a political party? Because I was thinking about this. I think in the kind of uh, Madisonian vision of American democracy, you, the, the constituents, the voters, right, us, we have an idea of what we think uh, a government should be. And then two people, at that time, two men stand for election, and we choose the one that is closer to our views, right? That's the way democracy works. But throughout American history, you find that the opposite is happening, especially now in kind of the information age, that the leaders are not a reflection of the constituents. The constituents are a reflection of, of our leaders. And, you, and I was thinking about how, you know, we're in this overly politicized 
time, right? That there are fewer moderate, there are, there are no liberal Republicans anymore. There are so few moderate Democrats. And is this because the country, is this because something has changed in the country driving Democrats and Republicans farther apart, conservatives and liberals farther apart? Or is it just because, you know, is it self-perpetuating and we've elected leaders that are farther, you know, on either extreme of the political spectrum and then they lead us, they convince us of their of the merits of their argument and then when we get frustrated with them, we elect someone that is even more extreme than them. So so I guess my question is, what is the purpose of the political party? Is it is it to kind of corral these people together or like who is the tail wagging the dog or is the dog wagging the tail? So I think it's important to say a couple things. One, so your question is what's the purpose of a political party? I think there's um, a a de facto answer Mm -hmm. to how politics is played in the United States and has been played for a very long time, almost since its foundation, Mm -hmm. which, as you mentioned a minute ago with your John Adams quote, isn't necessarily in line with the founder's vision, or at least most of the founder's visions. Mm -hmm. Very famously, George Washington's farewell address addressed Party politics is one of the greatest threats to the fledgling republic. I have that quote here. However, political parties may now and then answer popular ends. They are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. I think that basically each political party's engine is demonizing the other party. And that when, so like right now that the Republicans are in power, you know, in, in the federal, on the federal level, in a way that they haven't been since 2006, they're struggling to put together a cohesive narrative because up until this, you know, for the last 10 years, the narrative has been, you need us to say no to the Democrats. And does that make sense? Yeah. In in a way that, I mean, I'm I'm not saying that the Democrats are equal or to the British, you know, redcoats of the Revolutionary War, but it's easy to unite disparate factions when you have a common enemy. And right now the Republic I mean the Democrats are still the Republicans' enemy, I guess you could say, but but they're in control. And what you saw a couple of weeks ago with the healthcare repeal, that the Republicans couldn't, you know, couldn't even get call a vote because they were losing the House Freedom Caucus. And then if they tipped too far in the direction of the House Freedom Caucus, then they were going to lose the moderates, as we in the Democratic Party are sometimes led to believe. Or not as unified as even they sometimes believe. Absolutely. And I think that's a sign of um, of ill health on the Republican side. So you're, you're, I'm going to go back to your question. What is the purpose of a political party? Sure. Um, I would I would try to define that as a political party is an organizational structure mm-hmm. that operates off of a commonly held set of beliefs, policies, or ideologies. Mm-hmm. Commonly held meaning commonly held amongst the people in that political party, mm-hmm. and it it is an institution or an organizational structure that provides financial resources, training, and a platform for uh, various individuals or groups of people to put forth a policy, put forth a policy agenda, enact legislation, defend legislation, um, and generally uh, kind of, yeah, generally be a vehicle for policy. Okay, let me ask you this question. I, I agree with your um, you know definition of a 
political party and what its purpose is. But what does it mean when we came very close in 2016 to seeing a presidential campaign between two people, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, who 10 years ago, Donald Trump was not a Republican, and as recently as yesterday or today, Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat. So Bernie Sanders is registered as a Democrat before the primary in 2015, but before that, he was not a Democrat. Okay, but he's he didn't... Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So he had to register as a Democrat to run in the primary as a Democrat. Okay. But yet you he didn't change his affiliation in Congress. Interesting. I don't I have to look into that. Sorry, I didn't mean to No, no, no. Okay. Well, then the then it's equal that 10 years ago neither one of them is, was a member of the party in which they came close to leading and Donald Trump is the leader of his party. Now. I would also point to the similarities between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And again to be very clear, while I think Donald Trump has some deplorable personality traits. Mm-hmm. There are there are some protectionist um, and looking out for the little guy similarities between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. So mm-hmm. uh, trade policy is very similar between the two of them. Um, they were both very anti-TPP. So, so let's just unpack this for a second. Yeah. So when you're talking about protectionism, you're talking about raising tariffs or raising taxes on imported goods. And the idea behind that is if you, if things cost, if things that are made overseas cost more money to come into this country, we're more likely to buy things that are made here. And then business owners are more likely to build factories in our country. Right. It makes the cost of American goods more cost competitive within the political confines of the United States of America. Right. So instead of a shirt made in Malaysia costing 50 cents, um, even if it did, even if their costs were fifty cents, there's a ten dollar tariff on it, and now for an American to buy a Malaysian shirt it is more expensive, artificially more expensive, right? Um, than buying a shirt made in Louisville, Kentucky. And yes, both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. I mean, that's the populist, right? Yeah. That's the populist ethos that you have to protect the American workers. Also, both of them expressed uh, support of policies that were very statist and very friendly, particularly to the demographic of senior citizens. So not touching Medicare, not touching social security, which was a huge, that was, that's probably the area where Donald Trump and Paul Ryan are the most far away from one another. Right. Is not touching entitlement programs. So the protectionism that they have in common shows the populist ethos between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. I mean, what are other things that they Shared in 2016. Well, they were also very isolationist, both Mm -hmm. of them, right? right. And Hillary Clinton represented the kind of neoliberal interventionist kind of worldview. She was probably closer to George W. Bush than she was to Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. When it comes to foreign policy. When it comes to foreign policy. Yeah. And I think that's another big axis that is under-discussed about how things are shaking up. Um, A lot of – you could point to our kind of national – the national shattering of our – um, of our collective spirit that occurred with, let's say, the Iraq War, right. where now millennials are maybe more skeptical of foreign intervention and we've become a more a more isolationist mm-hmm. country, at least temporarily. But You know what's scary about that, though, just for a quick second, is that, so millennials is, I mean, we're you and I are millennials, so what is it? It's like fi- age 15 to 35? Millennials are loosely defined as being born... Anywhere between 1980 and 1984. No, it's bigger than that. And going up until oh, okay. <laughs> the year 2000. Oh, okay. Up, born until, yeah, so they're between 15 and 35. Yeah. Um, the, like the last, in 2018 election is the last election where new millennials will be voting. As 18-year-olds, yeah. yeah. 
yeah, so in 2020, we'll already be seeing post-millennials voting. Yes. And post-millennials did not grow up with 9-11. Did, I mean, they grew up post-9-11. They grew up post-Iraq war. And so it's interesting to, you know, to kind of guess where they're going to go, where they're, what they're going to believe. Just, uh, I'm going to back up and let's talk about the party system in the United States. So the first political parties, you know, came about, I mean, the true political parties came about in the 1790s, right? Um, it was back then. The, the Democratic Democrat- Republicans? And yeah, the they called themselves right? the Republicans, but historians called them Democratic Republicans and the Federalists. And throughout our 240, 230 year history, we've had, you know, periods of alignment, dealignment, realignment. And those are, that's called the party system. And in the United States, we've had six party systems, historians generally agree. And I don't know anything about this. So oh, really? I'm really excited, yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, the first one is the, we just mentioned, Democratic Republicans and the Federalists. And the second one came about, it was like the Whig Party, you know, Henry Clay, American system, and the Democrats. And so it... I'm I'm making gestures with my hands that you, the listener, can't see, but it's like each party system sees the parties kind of revolving around each other, shifting to gain new constituents, and in those shifts, they're losing constituents, right? I mean, the party system works if the parties are basically at 50-50. Other than that, you fail to have a true constituent. Uh, competitive party system. So the most recent one, the one that we're in right now, is called the Sixth Party System. It's it's difficult to pin down when it began. Um, it could have begun as early as 1969, right? Kind of in response to the Vietnam War, in response to the Johnson civil rights legislation. You see uh, Nixon moving the Republican Party into the South. And it's, it's crazy to think that like before this, the Republicans never won elections in the South. And you see the Democrats moving more into the cities throughout the country, into the, you know, into the Chicago, New York, L.A., San Francisco. So each of these party systems is preceded by a period of dealignment. And so uh, historians generally believe that the 70s were basically that period of dealignment where everything was shifting. And then you get to 1980 and Ronald Reagan kind of crystallizes the... Um, that sixth party system. Now, one uh, historian, and I'm probably going to forget his name. I'll try to find it. I'll put it in the show notes. One historian believes that the uh, party systems last for 36 years. That specifically? Yeah. That, that it has to do with the number of presidential elections. Interesting. So what is that? Nine, S- ten? Nine, yeah. nine. Nine terms, ten elections. So... If you believe that, I mean, regardless, it's a it's roughly forty years. It's a mm-hmm. it's in the neighborhood of forty years. If you believe that the sixth party system began in the late seventies or nineteen eighty, then we are right now due for a dealignment and the beginning of the seventh party system. Yeah, well, the dealignment will give way to the seventh party system. Yeah, I have a lot of ideas about how that's going to play out. Okay, but do you want to talk more about? Well, let's talk this? about. The, do you want to talk more about now and yesterday before I start going crazy on tomorrow? I do want to talk more about now and yesterday. So I, just to talk about what were the issues of the sixth party system, the one that basically we've lived in our entire lives, um, increased role of technology by television and later the internet, right? Uh, the This one is, a, it, I mean, that's a huge one. And, and one that I really 
believe is changing the relationship between voters and their elected officials. Because of the internet now, we have, I mean, Donald Trump is so famous for tweeting, but we have the ability to hear him more in our day than any previous president, right? I mean, think about that. Think about how often Ronald Reagan was in the average voter's life in 1981. Probably once or twice a day. I would say morning newspaper and evening news broadcast. Yeah. If something was going on, but there are times, you know, in the middle of the term where not a lot. Oh, we'll see if that happens. I don't know. I was was barely sentient during Ronald Reagan's. Uh, Money in politics has been an issue in this party system. Um, Increased unity of control as each party and partisans eliminate moderates or differing opinions within their party. And I think that this goes back to money in politics. Uh, Democratic emphasis on identity over economics or labor when you compare it to the New Deal or the Progressive Era. And greater Republican emphasis on values than in the previous system, right? When you look at the social issues, whereas the Republicans, maybe because they had been split in the past, didn't bring those things up. But it's not until you really get into the 1960s with Barry Goldwater, who ran for president, that the Republican Party moves in that direction. So those have been some of the axes that the party system have been aligned or, you know, misaligned on in the last 30 years. There's a few others that you mentioned, right? Foreign policy, trade. So go ahead. What do you think are going to be the issues that kind of divide the aisle, right? Yeah. Um, In the next party system. It's always dangerous to make predictions, Mm -hmm. but I love doing it (laughs) because I don't mind being wrong. First of all, no brainer. You're expecting me to say this is going to be technology. And I think technology is going to be what technology was to the sixth party system with cable news, television, and the internet. Mm -hmm. I think jet fuel is about to be poured onto our political process by way of technology. And we can talk about that a little bit. Um, Second of all, issues that are important to individuals based on their age demographic rather than their race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, et cetera. I think we're going to see the identity politics of the Democrats of the last 10 or 20 years start to wane and age demographics will take the place of racial, religious, or sexual orientation um, identity politics in new ways. And I'll talk about that for a bit. And I don't want to monologue, so I would like well, you but, to jump so, in. Uh, but I want to talk about both of those things. So. Well, I've got another one, too. Okay, go for it. Um, and the third one is globalism. Roughly, I would wrap in globalism two huge issues, foreign policy, basically military intervention, and trade policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my little outline. I have a lot to say about all three of those, but I don't want to monologue either. So let's riff. Do you want to talk about tech age or globalism first? I want to talk about age first. Are you saying that as generation X gets older and starts to retire, that the democratic party will seek to represent that generation? Let's, I want to actually challenge us to do something really trippy here. Let's, for the sake of this conversation, Let's not use the labels Democrat or Republican. Okay. Okay. So let's, it's going to be hard. Oh, I see what it's you're It's going to be really hard. Because we're talking but about you a and future I, party system. Exactly. Right. You and I both have a ton of preconceived notions and baggage and history right. and associations with the Democrats and the Republicans. And so does every listener of ours and every person in this country. Mm-hmm. And even though I would say 10 years from now, I could go either way on this. There are very likely to be two parties, two major parties for all of American history, Mm -hmm. unless we have a constitutional crisis, a civil war, and a rewriting of the Constitution. 
so I feel like a lot of people on Facebook are like, why aren't we, why don't we have multiple parties? And I do want to talk about that because there are practical limitations to why the United States doesn't. Sure. So I promise we will talk about that. But I agree with what you're saying that we, you, you know, it's unfair to say the Democrats are going to do this, the Republicans are going to do right. this because we have absolutely no way of knowing. So we should just refer to them as like, you know, party A, party B or whatever. Well, let's give them some name. Well, let's maybe come up with some new names for the sake of conversation. Okay. Like, so one, I would say their odds are high that 10 or 20 years from now, there will be two parties. Right. And those parties may be called the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Right. Also, there could be a new party or it could be completely new parties. Let's do some projection, and that always exposes you to being wrong. But I'm, like I said before, I'm okay with that. Donald Trump is doing a lot of damage to the Republican brand in terms of long-term demographics. Yes. So there are things we don't know what the parties are going to be called ten years from mm-hmm. now, but we know within reason what the population projection is going to be, right? And the makeup of that projection. So, for example, by the year 2050, U.S. Census projections estimate that at current rates of fertility and immigration. The United States of America's population will max out at about 400 million people by 2050. Okay. And in 2050, uh, white uh, European people of white European descent will be a minority, um, but probably a, still a plurality. Right. So, so somewhere in the low 40 percent. Yeah. So just to define that, so meaning that they a minority, they do not make up 50 percent or more, but a plurality, meaning they are the largest single group ethnic block. Right. However. There is some really interesting demographic data that shows that Hispanic voters uh, and his, and I never know. I'm always this is probably we're going to cut this out, but as no, a, this is an important question that I'm I have about a very to ask. important question yeah. for you, and it's that how do I as a as a white American refer to American citizens that are of descent from Mexico, Latin America, and uh, the Caribbean, and generally speaking, Spanish speaking countries of origin that tend to but not unilaterally vote together in a block. So this is a very tricky question. You're, I think on the surface you're asking to refer to them as Hispanic or Latino, and it, it, either is fine, in my opinion. My understanding was that Latino was specifically Mexico or Latin America, whereas, for example, Puerto Ricans and Cubans typically are more aligned with Republicans and have a far more concentrated voting block in the southeastern United States, whereas Mexicans and Latin Americans have a much bigger presence in the Midwest and the Southwest of the United States and um, skew more heavily Democratic uh, in terms of identity politics. Yeah, but what does that how does that relate to Hispanics versus Latinos? So what would you refer to them all as a group or would that be uh, racism and, and folly on my part? Well, there's a couple things here because I, I would I would refer to them all as a group, even though, yes, Cuban-Americans are traditionally much more – skew much more Republican than, than other nationality, uh, you know, Hispanic nationalities. But I think that Donald Trump is aligning – is. Donald Trump is pushing more Cuban-Americans toward the Democratic Party than we'd seen in the last 50 years. Right. So here's my first prediction. Donald oh, Trump. But I do need to point <clears throat> out that the, the challenge with classifying Hispanics is that there are black Hispanics. Okay. Right? So From that if you're a Dominican black Republic. Cuban, if you're a black, yeah, uh, Dominican, if you're a black Brazilian, and you come to this country, like... Do you identify, you know, if you're Cuban and Dominican, you speak Spanish, so you, there's certainly an identification with other Hispanics, but you look and are treated like a black person. So right. that that's an interesting kind of... Act. This is interesting because it gets back to the point I was making. So I'm going to use the term Hispanic, and I mean no offense to anyone. I hope I'm not offending anybody. So I think the the 
broadest unifying demographic aspect of that community is that they are overwhelmingly Catholic. And I think that, so this is my first prediction. Donald Trump is going to do a ton of damage to the Republican Party's relationship with the Hispanic community in the United States. That it like feels wrong coming out of my mouth. I don't know. Is that weird? No, it's not weird, but it's also not Latino. Donald Trump is the is the culmination of the Republican policies on immigration. I totally understand. But my question here is how what makes you most comfortable for me referring to American citizens that are descended from Spanish speaking immigrants? <laughs> what what's the term? Figure out what you just said and then turn that into an acronym. Okay. Uh, no, it's fine. Hispanic you know, Americans. Okay. Americans of Hispanic descent? I don't know. So I think Donald Trump is going to do a ton of damage to the Republican Party's relationship to Hispanics, and they're going to lose some major elections. I think this is going to be one of the big kind of tenure arcs here is going to be that the Republicans are going to get their butts kicked in 2018, 2020, and going forward. And it's largely going to be because of the increasing organization and uh, cohesion of Hispanics as a voting bloc. So you're talking about in states that have significant Hispanic populations, right? Like Texas, Florida, Absolutely. New Mexico, Arizona. I think by 2020, it would not be shocking to me if uh, Arizona turns blue. Also, with the 2020 census, Texas is one of the states that is going to be gaining congressional districts. And with smaller congressional districts, increases the likelihood that some of those congressional districts will be concentrated Hispanic uh, right. populations that will vote Democratic. So you'll have a larger Democratic Texan caucus right. in the House of Representatives. And um, I think the Republicans are going to get their asses kicked for about 10 years. The result, though, will be, I think, going back to what you said about values, I think being Catholic, Hispanics are natural, what we think of today as Republican voters. And I think a not xenophobic, a there are two points I want to make here. A not xenophobic and opposed immigration Republican Party, I think, is a natural home for a lot of Hispanic voters. Secondly, hold on, you got to say that again. A not xenophobic. A Republican Party that is not xenophobic right. and is not opposed to immigration reform is a natural home for Hispanic voters, in my opinion. Secondly, going back to the racial demographics that we can look to over long arcs of time, there is a ton of sociological data that shows that as immigrants from Spanish-speaking countries come to the United States and uh, are replaced, not replaced, and over time, first, second, third generation Americans are born, there's nothing genetically different going on with those populations. And yet, generation to generation, more and more of those American citizens stop identifying as Hispanic or Latino and start identifying as white. So I would like to point to the ongoing research that race is a construct and it's mm -hmm. not a real thing, mm -hmm. to that racial boundaries are fluid, mm -hmm. that 150 years ago, Irish people or Italian people weren't really considered white, and three, that the America, th that one way that a values-oriented conservative party in 2050 might recapture a demographic majority in a world where what we think of today as white is the plurality but still a minority would be to say, oh, Latinos, you're not that different from us. You're really not even that different skin colored than us. You're really just white. You start identifying as white and you basically see a swelling uh, not by reproduction or immigration, but basically by reclassification of race lines, you see a swelling of what is considered white and whites retain a majority demographic block 
by incorporating Latinos in the future. I can't even tell you how that makes me feel. That makes me so upset. Did I offend you? No, not at all. I just wanted to check. Yeah. Your future party, you know, the new wigs have offended me because I had never even considered that. But you're right. That is most likely, not most likely, that is a likely extension of America's kind of demographic, quote, problem. I mean, and you're right. It did happen with Italians, with uh, Greeks, with Armenians, Right, that Armenians uh, had to like fight in in some through the courts to classify themselves as white, and the fact that a party that has maligned Hispanics for decades could suddenly go like, oh, J.K. That upsets me. Like I literally got chills. Like that's so upsetting to me. I also think going back to the values issue that a Republican party that gets its ass kicked over the course of ten years and goes, there are a lot of conservative or values-oriented members of the LGBT community mm-hmm. that, I mean, one of the biggest through lines of the gay rights movement in the last couple decades is we just want to marry the people we love right. and start families and buy homes and raise kids. From a values-oriented standpoint, if you can ignore the, the bullshit sections of the Old Testament that say that homosexuality is a sin, mm-hmm. really there is a natural constituency there. Absolutely. So I think a, a Republican Party or what today we call a Republican Party, that post-Donald Trump is in the wilderness, that gets his ass kicked for a decade and says, okay, we're going to realign our platform. We're going to center it around values still. We're going to center it around families. And we're going to incorporate the LGBTQ community and the Hispanic community and kind of absorb them into our party platform. Mm -hmm. I think that has some staying power, especially if they merge that with um, imagine a imagine what we think of again as today's Republican Party adopting, and I think you see some glimmers of this with Ivanka Trump, uh, start adopting family friendly, maternity friendly, child care and benefit friendly policies. So paid. Imagine a Republican Party that embraces paid uh, paid parental leave, leave mm-hmm. really adopts kind of child care and education, and kind of makes it kind of the insular family oriented party. Okay, so let's back up because all of these issues that you're bringing up make sense, but what is the narrative? I mean, the narrative cannot simply be we want. The narrative has to be coherent. I think the narrative is going to be, this segues into um, thing number three on my outline, and that's globalization. Mm -hmm. So I think the narrative isn't going to necessarily overtly be Hispanics aren't really a different race or gay people are fine. Let's incorporate them into our party. The story is going to be in an increasingly global world, what does it mean to be American? And I think this party I'm describing that may be in the wilderness for the next 10 years will find its feet by saying what makes America great is families and values and specifically American values Mm -hmm. and orients itself as the insular American identity, family oriented, traditional um, but tradition, but party. But how does the traditional pol- party include LGBT voters? Because if you ig- ignore, if you look beyond the sexual orientation or gender makeup of the members of the family, they're still people that want to form families. Right. And so I'm looking at the family as the tradition rather than the woman in a dress and man in a suit <laughs> as a tradition. Uh huh. Now going to globalism, I think what will either what the democratic party will become or what will replace the democratic party will be the party of 
international business, mm -hmm. free trade, technology. Um, I think Wall Street plus Silicon Valley plus Hollywood plus NAFTA, TPP, et cetera, the party of the global monoculture, which let's be fair, I'll speak for myself, I am a member of, right? Like I consider myself right. to have a lot more similar, like I have a lot more in common with upper middle class, well-traveled, college-educated, Irish people, Moroccans, and Brazilians than I do with some people that live six blocks away from me, right? Yeah. And so... You goddamn elitist. Go on. I'm not trying to be elitist. No, no, no. I'm just I'm trying just to be honest. Time. But, but I've never heard that phrase before. What? Monoculture? The global monoculture. So, the, like, this idea is that as political boundaries disappear or erode, as trade increases, as technology increases, as technology decreases the size of the earth, as you can be... Uh, as you can be a remote worker or um, travel around the world, basically the idea is that global availability of certain foodstuffs, global availability of cultural oh, wow. accoutrement like music, movies, etc., right. uh, the global dominance of the English language right. have created this – it's basically – going back to my point about how I have more in common with an upper middle class Brazilian, mm -hmm. I have more in common with a rich Chinese person, right, than I do – probably your grandmother right and your grandmother lives 12 miles away from me right right if i go to shanghai and walk into an apple store right i am participating in the same culture as a wealthy shanghainese person and so that is some people hear that and hear very scary things i'm not one of those people i don't know what kind of a quirk of my upbringing or whatever that is i'm not afraid of that as yeah. a matter of fact i think it's the natural destiny of uh, the human race i'm not either Earth. and i think that Good can a lot of good can come from that. Absolutely, and so I think that's the party that will replace. So in this, I'm just trying to figure out again. It's challenging because if you could divorce current, the, you know, current voters from their sometimes romantic attachments to their political parties, I'm trying to figure out like where does everybody end up? Sure. So like the Bernie Sanders supporter ends up in that family oriented probably that's the weird thing there are two big blocks that i don't know what to do with senior citizens and organized labor right now senior citizens identify almost exclusively with the republican party today mm. in very heavy majorities is there data to support that i believe so and if i'm wrong i'll admit it so what do we do with senior citizens and where do they fit in this structure or do they fit at all right and what do we do with organized labor i think maybe both of those fit in the future family values party. I think and that organized, gets weird. Imagining organized labor, you might, it might play to a draw. I See, I don't see a world in which there is, let's say, let's imagine a world, let's get crazy. <laughs> this Tw is already pretty crazy. 2050, the United States of America still exists. And in terms of what happens on our borders, largely it's similar to what it is today. However, the United States is a member of a global free trade network. Mm-hmm. And participates in a global currency. Maybe it's even the U.S. dollar. Sure. In that world, what does what happens to organized labor? Unless we start to see the formation of transnational labor unions, in which case maybe it has a place. Uh, but there's always going to be labor. Of course, there's always going to be labor. The question is, well, labor unions. I mean, there's not. See, I don't know about that. Like, I think the labor unions have been tremendous force for good in the 20th century as a reaction to tremendously unfavorable working conditions that you saw in the as a ramification of the Industrial Revolution. However, in the year 2050, when the majority of labor is performed by robots 
And in a world where the international business order is such that there are effectively no borders and effectively global currencies, in that world, where does organized labor fit? Are the robots unionizing? Labor finds a way. <laughs> because I mean, first of all, you're going to have teachers, doctors, nurses. Sure. Um, you're going to have those things. You can't take away teachers, doctors, and nurses. Not. I don't think you years. take away teachers. I think teachers are... I think even when I think even when robots can teach your kids, parents are going to place a premium on a human being teaching their child how to read and write. Oh my god, this is Soylent Green. You're talking about Soylent. Uh, no, I think I think I think actually teachers might be one of the highest paid professions in the year 2050 because people will have to artificially vote with their dollars. Like people have to vote with their dollars to place a premium on the value of that human labor because it aligns with their idea of what a childhood is. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't know. I can't play. I can't game it out that far. What's going to happen to labor? And but like, but I think also, by what's 20... a senior citizen in 2050? It's you and me, right? No. So that's another question. Yes, it is. Oh, yeah. We'll be <laughs> six. I'll be 66 in the year 2050. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's another thing. Like, does life get meaningfully extended? Right. That's a whole nother angle to this age demographic. Right. Are the senior citizens of the year 2050, you and me, that have crossed the 65 age threshold that was set in Prussia in the early <laughs> 1900s? Um or is there a new age block that is the healthy 90 to 120 year old that is now alive in larger numbers than ever before in human history? There's some research and data that's pointing to uh, new breakthroughs in life extension where we, right. we may live to be 150 or 200 years old. And then there's counter research that says we can make people healthier longer, but there is a meaningful limit on right. the viability of human life. So you can be healthy into your 80s and 90s, but a lot of, most people die in their 80s or 90s or 100s, um, and that's just a functional limit to human right. life, and, and I don't know if there's any way of knowing. I would put my money on life extension if I had to. So if I had to make a prognostication, I would say by 2050, let's not get too out of hand, although I'm almost always too conservative. I want to point back to our, um, our episode that we did about animal rights, and I, this is like a little bit of follow-up. Um, I, I referenced the um, the lab grown beef. Oh yeah, that was a quarter of a million dollars a pound or three hundred thousand dollars a pound. That data was out of date. My data was from twenty thirteen, and as of this year, it is now eleven dollars a pound. So I was too conservative in my crazy prognostication that I got a lot of feedback from people. Okay, so saying, what are you Nick, saying now? How, how late? So what I'm saying is, like, I think it's reasonable to assume that you basically add, like, we think of age as, like, 0 to 20, 20 to 40, 40 to 60, 60 and over. And I would say keep adding generational blocks on top, right? Maybe you've got an 80 to 100 demographic, 100 to 120 demographic that still exists, still votes, et cetera. Um, And the reason, sorry, just to bring it back, the reason why this is important to our discussion about politics and political parties is because for the last 150 maybe 200 years, the population dynamic, right, the population graphs are predicated upon exactly those kinds of uh, distinctions. And when you extend life beyond, significantly past 80, right? I mean, obviously people live past 80 right now, but the life expectancy in the United States is right around there. And when you extend it significantly past 80 so that a large group of Americans are living into their 80s, 90s, and a few are reaching, or regularly people are reaching 100, then it's changing politics, right? Now, suddenly, all these 18 to 30-year-olds who are already being dwarfed uh, demographically at the ballot 
at the at the voting booth are now like if they're being dwarfed now, their their um, significance is completely marginalized. If they're if they as a voting bloc are competing with so many old people, and I'm right. not against also, old people, but but also imagine what happens to the to social programs mm-hmm. when if you keep retirement age for social security benefits at si- somewhere between 65 and 70 and you have people living to be 120 years old people are spending half of their life retired right that's a big question mark that's also in a world where there's no universal basic income which could right. probably solve a lot of this another thing i want to point to is um, when my son Henry was born, the year is 2014, and that year an article came out that said a child born in 2014, um, the average life expectancy for a child born in 2014 would be 100 years old. So that's with today's technology. That's like Henry, God willing, will live to be 100 years old, and that will be normal with today's technology. That's assuming no further advances or gains. So I think this is a world we have to prepare for and a world we have to think about. So in this world, right – does universal basic income solve a lot of these problems? Does it not? Um, how do the um, octogenarians of the year 2040 vote um, or the centenarians of 2040 vote? Yeah. Um, do they vote more in line with their values-oriented great-grandchildren in the new Republican Party? Or do they um, spend their retirement money windsurfing in Brazil and identify more with the new Democratic Party <laughs> and the world of, right. of global business and technology? I would, I, would, I would put my money, if you force me to, to be super simple and to kind of bring it back, I would put my money on the Republicans' re- the Republican Party or the new Republican Party retaining values and morphing what it thinks of as racial constructs and and family norms um, in way of sexual orientation and potentially embracing more social programs, but keeping it keeping it about American identity. And the new Democrats will embrace Silicon Valley, Wall Street and Hollywood and become the party of the global international business order. It's interesting that that's how you kind of map the trajectories even though we said we weren't going to use democrats and republicans like that you have and you've that's your perspective of the extension of these two political parties yet it could we could just as easily live in the world where they pivot kind of the other way the democrats already have a narrative that includes a lot of those things that you are assigning to the new republicans so basically if they just pivot away from globalism which you know is the, the bernie sanders wing of the party would would suggest then the Democrats could occupy the space that you're giving to the new Republicans. Does that make sense? Sure. And you could say the other way. Or, I mean, they already have a constituency that includes LGBT voters. That includes those Hispanic Catholics. So, yeah, we might be living in a world in 2050 where you and I are voting for the new Republicans and, like, happily, like, you know, volunteering to, sure. to elect, um, you know, Baron Trump. Thank you very much for listening. You can find us on Twitter at RobotFKennedy. You can also find us on iTunes. And please subscribe. And if you enjoy the podcast, rate it. And if you really enjoy the podcast, recommend us to a friend. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. I'm Nick Daze. I'm Eddie Quintana. We'll see you next week.